There's the old adage for parents, right, that uh, when your children are little, they step on your toes, and when they're older, they step on your heart, right? And in many ways, that's the experience that Paul is, is, is under at this moment, right? When he first came to the Galatian individuals, these, these individuals who become Christians, followers of Jesus Christ, he labored among them to see them turn to the Lord, right? And now he's watching them, and they're sort of regressing into a second childhood, as it were. They were going backwards into legalism, and like that old adage, it was stepping on Paul's heart. It was crushing him. But most importantly, it was grieving the heart of God, right? That these individuals would go back to law after having tasted the joys and sweetness and freedom that comes from grace, okay? Uh, Let's open our our time in prayer, and then we're going to dive into the text. It's quite long this morning, so we will keep it on a cruise control um, at 70 miles an hour, okay? Let's pray. God, we thank you for this day. We're grateful for, again, grace. We're grateful for freedom. We thank you for how the message and meaning and events of Christmas, the coming of our Lord, is deeply embedded in us even knowing and having the the, the privilege to taste of freedom. Uh, to be set free from the powers of sin and death is only made possible, Lord, because you humbled yourself. You came to this earth. You took on the form of a man, took on human flesh. You did what the law was unable to do, weak as though it was in the flesh. And you came as a sin offering. And so we say thank you. We pray that in the hustle and bustle of the season, you would allow us to pause, to take a deep breath, joyfully place ourselves under the, the ministry of your word, And Lord, that you would give us understanding, yes, theologically speaking, that our understanding of you and your gospel would be, would grow more and more robust. But Lord, most, even attached to that, most importantly, we pray that our affections would blaze uh, warm for the things of you, uh, that we would be moved to be grateful, we would be compelled to worship you in a way that you deserve. And we pray this now in Jesus' name, amen. All right, Galatians 4, 21 through 31. Um, kind of a disclaimer, when you read it, this is going to be one of those texts that you just kind of pause and scratch your head for a moment. Don't panic. We're going to unpack that, okay? Verse 21 reads, Paul says, Tell me, you who want to be under law, do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by the bondwoman and one by the free woman. But the son by the bondwoman was born according to the flesh, and the son by the free woman through the promise. This is allegorically speaking, for these women are two covenants, one proceeding from Mount Sinai bearing children who are to be slaves. She is Hagar. Now this Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia, and it corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free. She is our mother. For it is written, Rejoice, barren woman who does not hear. Break forth and shout, you who are not in labor. For more numerous are the children of the desolate than of the one who has a husband. And you, brethren, like Isaac, are children of promise. But as at that time he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, so it is now also. What does the Scripture say? Cast out the bondwoman and her son, for the son of the bondwoman shall not be an heir with the son of the free woman. So then, brethren, we are not children of a bondwoman, 
but of the free woman. What on earth is Paul doing there? All right, so let's take a step back, reconnect again, yet again to the book of Galatians. This has become a resounding drum that we're beating week after week because this is the message of the book. You have a group of individuals known as the Judaizers, right? They are continuing to, continuing to appeal to the law, drawing people back, right? Bewitching them, leading them astray, leading them back to legalism. And, and now Paul yet again accepts their challenge And he uses the law once more to prove that Christians are not under the law, but are under grace. And notice in verse 21, he really kind of begins with a question that serves as an intro to an allegorical explanation, an analogous explanation that's going to follow in verses 22 and following, right? He's going to use real life historical events happen in time and space, and he's going to use them as an analogy to outline the difference between the old covenant and the new covenant. The question is, tell me, you who want to be under law, do you not listen to the law? Do you not pay attention to the first five books of, of the Bible, the book of Moses, right? It's always, if you, if you are listening, it's always been confirmed that God's plan of redemption has been one of grace. And it has been since the very beginning. And yet you desperately want to use the law. You're trying feverishly to live under its bondage. And yet here's the sick irony. You don't even listen to the law of which you say you cling. And so what Paul does here, he says, okay, you want to use the law? Let's use the law yet again. That's been chapter four for us, right? Arrow after arrow, he's shooting it across the bow, dismantling their argument of drawing these people back to legalism. He says, let's use the law and we're gonna use it to further underscore the point that I've been making, but most importantly, the point that God has made in his precious gospel, okay? Paul says, let me break this down for you in a way that you can understand. Now, I want you to pause and think anecdotally in your own life, right? You know this from experience. You ever been in an occasion where you're trying to explain something to someone? And it's just not sinking in. And you say, okay, you take a deep breath. This happened even at dinner. We were at dinner with friends and a friend started grabbing things on the table to try to explain what was happening, right? And we do this, right? You take the pepper shaker, salt shaker, bag and, uh, stack of napkins, the plate, and you say, hey, this pepper shaker's you and this salt shaker's God and that stack of napkins, that's the church and this plate is the new Jerusalem, right? And why do we do that? We we use different object lessons to try to help explain what it is we're trying to convey. And that's exactly what Paul is doing here. Paul is using things that happen in history, specifically Ishmael and Isaac, a very familiar story. And Paul is being led by God's spirit to use these to point out the message of the gospel of grace. Paul says, okay, let's do this. You're not getting it. You're well acquainted with Abraham. Let's start there. And you know, this is true of Jewish people. They have tremendous respect and deem Abraham to be who in their life? Their father, right? And so much so that Abraham is a source of tremendous spiritual pride for them and even pride to their own deceptive detriment, okay? Abraham is our father. So Paul says, let's go to Abraham since you revere him so much. And he takes this familiar story, Genesis 16 through 21, Ishmael and Isaac, and he uses this historical account to draw out from it basic truths about the Christian's relationship 
to the law of Moses. Now, important pastoral caveat here. The events that we read of in Galatians 4 that Paul alludes back to, you need to remember, because this, others would argue otherwise, these are real historical events. This actually happened, okay? But Paul is using something that really happened in history and using, using them as an analogy or an illustration to further underscore the point that he's making. Look at verse 24 for a moment. Paul, the apostle says, this is allegorically speaking. Now, I want to give a disclaimer there. What is Paul not saying? This is allegorically speaking. What he's not saying is that the account of Abraham, Sarah, and Hagar was some sort of meaningless fantasy and that somehow Paul is now able to find a hidden meaning in the present day through that uh, fantasy account, okay? Now, these events and God's dealing with these people are actual undeniable history. They literally happened and they're powerfully meaningful. And so what the Holy Spirit is inspiring Paul to do is use this historical account from the book of Genesis and to use it to describe the believer's relationship to the law and to further underscore the vast difference between the old covenant and the new covenant. Everyone follow? Okay, because we're gonna work at this line by line. God's plan of redemption has always been a plan of grace and the freedom, right? Galatians 5.1, it was for freedom that Christ set you free Therefore, do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. The freedom that was to come from that grace, okay? His plan was not a law, not a plan of law and bondage. Main idea today, Galatians 4, 21 through 31. The Abrahamic covenant illustrates, I think it's the slide prior. Excellent. The Abrahamic covenant illustrates and affirms the gospel of grace, not law. Let me read that again. The Abrahamic covenant illustrates and affirms the gospel of grace, not law. God has been a God of grace since the beginning. And his dealings with Abraham here are going to sing of this melody throughout. Let's look at some of the historical facts of Galatians 4, 21 through 31 of what it outlines. Okay. Paul uses really a sense part of their Old Testament, Genesis 12 through 21. Okay. That's the the section in focus. And he's using it to prove his point of freedom, right? If the objects he's propping up to illustrate his message, right, are the details of this God-initiated event that occurred through 2,000 years prior to his day, well, if that's the case, you and I are lost. We're up a creek without a paddle if we are unfamiliar with what happened in Galatians, I mean, Genesis 12 through 21, right? So we need to re-familiarize ourselves with really the persons and actions and details of that historical account, okay? So for our purposes, what we're going to do is we're going to work our way through, starting at verse 22, and we're going to use Abraham's age as our guide to really kind of go back and remind ourselves, what did God do in Abraham's life? And we're going to trace those events on which Paul bases his arguments for Christian liberty and freedom, Okay, we've got a journey in front of us. Look at verse 22. For it is written that Abraham had two sons. You see who those two sons are, right? By way of reminder, Ishmael and Isaac. By the bondwoman, and one by the bondwoman and one by the free woman. That's Hagar and Sarah. But the son by the bondwoman, that's Ishmael from Hagar, was born according to the flesh. And the son by the free woman through the promise, that's Isaac, 
through Sarah. Let's just kind of get a timeline of Abraham's life from these couple of verses, right? At the age of 75, something pronounced happens in Abraham's life, right? God calls him to go to Canaan, and he promises to them many descendants, right? That's Genesis 12, 1 through 8. And both Abraham and his wife Sarah, they wanted children, but what was the dilemma in Abraham and Sarah's life? They wanted children, but Sarah was barren, right? Paul even says in Romans 4, right, 16 through 25, that literally God was waiting until both of them were as good as dead, right, before he would perform the miracle of sending them a son. So that Paul says, in hope against hope, they believed, knowing that their God, the God who called them, was the one who gives life to those who are dead and calls into being that which does not exist. That was their faith that we will later see in the year 2022 from Hebrews 11. We will see that great hall of faith. Their faith that resided in Abraham and Sarah and it was reckoned to them as righteousness. Fast forward 10 years, the age of 85, the promised son still has not arrived, right? And Sarah becomes, well, like all of us, when you wait for something for a really long time, what happens? You become impatient, right? And for us, we need to be careful not to cast judgment because we're all prone to do the exact same thing. And so in her impatience, what does Sarah propose? Somebody remind me. Remind us. Here's my bondservant, my handmaid, Hagar, Take her as a wife and have a son through her. That's what she does in her impatience. She suggests that Abraham marry Hagar, her maid, and try to have son, son by her. Now, that act was legal in that society in that time, but it was not in the will of God. That's not what God promised. You would have a son through Sarah. Well, we follow and know the rest of the story, Genesis 16, 1 through 3, right? Abraham followed her suggestion and marries Hagar. Fast forward a year. At the age of 86, Hagar gets pregnant, and Sarah, not only, she moves from impatience to <laughs> jealousy, right? Things are so difficult in the home that Sarah throws Hagar out, okay? The Lord intervenes, he sends Hagar back, and promises to take care of her and her son. And when Abraham is 86, the son is born, and he calls him Ishmael, right? Genesis 16, 4 through 16. Now, friends, you fast forward another 30, 13 years. Abraham's now at the age of 99. God speaks to him again and promises him that he will have a son by Sarah. Same promise. And says to call his name Isaac. Later in Genesis 17 through 18, God appears to Abraham again and reaffirms that promise to Sarah as well. As you move your way forward a year later, 100 years of age, that promise is fulfilled. The son is born. It's all recorded for us in Genesis 21, 1 through 7, right? In obedience to God, they named this child Isaac, okay? Means laughter. But the arrival of Isaac creates a new problem in the home. What problem exists in this home now? Ishmael and Isaac. What's that? Okay, one's, you got an older brother, younger brother, and at like siblings, what typically happens? There's a rivalry, right? All of a sudden, what, all of, a sudden what wasn't present now 
was. Ishmael has a rival and his name is Isaac. And for 14 years, Ishmael, you have to tap into this, had, had been his father's only son. He's dear to Abraham's heart. And so the question is, how is Ishmael going to respond to the presence of this new rival? That's the question. Well, three years later, after Isaac's birth, we find out how Ishmael will respond, don't we? It was customary for the Jews to wean a child at the age of three, okay? And they they were to make a big occasion of it, big festival, big feast, big gathering, big gathering. And so keep in mind, Abraham is now 103 years old. At that feast, Ishmael, Ishmael begins to do something. Genesis 21, 8 and following, Ishmael begins to mock his younger son, Isaac. And he begins to create trouble in the home, okay? And there's only one solution to this now rivalry problem. And it's a costly one that means that Hagar and her son have to do what? They have to leave. They have to get out. With a broken heart, Abraham sends his son away because that's what the Lord tells him to do in Genesis 21, 9 through 14. Now, take a deep breath. On the surface, this story appears to be nothing more than kind of a a tale of a family problem, right? But beneath the surface is an illustration that carries tremendous spiritual power, and this is what Paul is doing. Abraham, his two wives, and his two sons, sons, for the sake of Paul's illustration, each represent different spiritual realities, and their relationships to one another teach us very important lessons that Paul is laying on the table. Uh, I think this would be helpful. The next slide kind of outlines just maybe a chart of the comparison, the side-by-side, the juxtaposition that Paul is outlining using this historical account. You have the Old Covenant, New Covenant. Law, grace. Hagar the slave, Sarah the free woman. Ishmael conceived of the flesh, right? Born of the flesh. Isaac conceived miraculously. And you have an earthly Jerusalem, one of bondage, but you have a Jerusalem from above, a heavenly Jerusalem that is one of freedom. Everyone see the side-by-side there? Very important to cling to as we now transition and kind of look at those are the historical events. What on earth, what spiritual truths is Paul trying to outline from them? Let's shift gears for a moment, okay? Paul begins to explain the object lessons that lie behind this historical event, okay? And he further elaborates on the previous chart that you and I just looked at. Now, as you and I think about this and we read Genesis 21, 1 through 12, we discover some wonderful spiritual truths specifically about our salvation through this illustration. Truths that Paul was intentionally trying to convey through this analogous use of God's dealing with Abraham and extending a promise to him. So let's unpack this for a moment. In this process, in this analogy, Isaac illustrates the believer in several particular ways. Number one is he was born of God's power, right? Isaac was born of God's power. Take away the believer is born of God's spirit. The believer is born of God's spirit. In fact, God deliberately waited 25 years before he granted Abraham and Sarah their son to prove this point. So that Paul could undeniably say in, Genesis, in Galatians 4.29 that Isaac was born after the Spirit, right? You see what Paul's doing here, right? 
We as Christians, we are born after what? We're born of the Spirit. What does that hearken you back to in the New Testament, specifically the Gospel, specifically the Gospel of John? What passage? John 3, right? Remember Jesus' account, interaction with Nicodemus. He says, unless one is born of the Spirit, he cannot inherit the kingdom of God, right? That which is born of flesh is flesh. That which is born born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not be amazed that I said to you, you must be born again. The believer is one who's been born of the Spirit. Now, church, if Abraham represents faith, and we saw that in Galatians 3, 9, right? And Sarah here represents grace, not law. Here's the takeaway for each of us. Here's what Paul is doing. Isaac then came into the world through Abraham and Sarah so that he was born by grace through faith, right? You see what he's trying to convey to these people who have been bewitched? You are a people, just like Isaac, who've been who've been brought in by grace through faith. This is the reality that rests on every true follower of Christ. If you're in Christ today, you are born of God's spirit by grace through faith. This is the gospel freedom providing truth that Paul was trying to convey. And we know this theologically, right? Our role in salvation is primarily passive. We are objects of God's sovereign initiative, his mercy, his grace. Bible makes very plain to you and I that we are dead in our trespasses and sins, right? Last time I checked, dead people can't do anything. We are at the mercy of God intervening on our behalf. God in his mercy has to reach down, bring us up out of spiritual death into life by the power of his spirit. He removes the heart of stone. He unclogs our ears. He removes the scales from our eyes and allows us to see, hear, and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, right? And now you and I can find peace only in the work of that one who, as Paul says in Galatians, the one who was cursed on a tree for us. That's how we experience peace and freedom, life. Not by the way of law, but by grace. Second specific way Isaac illustrates the believer is that he was persecuted. Take away for us, the believer's life entails a conflict between the flesh and the spirit. This is the argument here. Isaac was persecuted. Verse 29, look at it here. But as at that time, he who was born according to the flesh, that's Ishmael, persecuted him who was born according to the spirit, that's Isaac. So it is now also. Now, from the word go, there was constant friction between Ishmael and Isaac and Hagar and Sarah, okay? The descendants of Hagar through Ishmael eventually would move into the desert area southeast of the promised land, a territory that's been known as the Arabian Peninsula, right? And you know this even today. We continue to see an animosity that exists in that place to this very moment, do we not? It continues to be the sons of Hagar and Sarah that make up the modern-day Arab-Israeli conflict that go on this current moment, a conflict that arose some 4,000 years ago, originating from two different people who could both trace their lineage back to Abraham. And that conflict is as strong as ever. The one born according to the flesh, Ishmael persecuted him who was born according to the spirit, Isaac. Here's the point that Paul is making. 
Ishmael caused problems for Isaac, just as our old nature, the flesh, causes problems for us. Anyone know that in their real life (laughs) as a believer? My old nature and the flesh, that unredeemed flesh, causes problems for me and causes problems for you. Paul's going to discuss this later. Come January 8th, we're going to step into chapter 5. We're going to round into a different part of this parking lot of the book. Look at Galatians 5.17. For the flesh sets its desire against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another so that you may not do the things that you please. Verse 18, but if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under what? You're not under the law. You, I mean, it's just a drum that Paul beats through this whole book until they get it, okay? Now, just to be clear here, as we kind of make sure we stay connected to the historical event, Ishmael didn't have any problems before Isaac entered the picture, right? There, there wasn't any rivalry. There was no conflict. It wasn't until someone else was born, right? Until Isaac was born. In the same way for us, here's the analogous explanation, the example that's being outlined for us. It's the same way in the believer's life. Our old nature creates no problems until what occurs? Until a new nature is given. Now all of a sudden, where there used to not be conflict, all we knew was hostility toward God. That was our natural disposition. That's all we knew. And we love to walk in that way. But when the new nature came into us, we were born of God's spirit, miraculously conceived, brought spiritual life. Now all of a sudden a war and an aggressive war, an incessant war has taken place and resides in our lives. And it will until glory, won't it? In Abraham's home, we see the basic conflicts that we as Christians face today. Hagar and Sarah, law versus grace. Ishmael and Isaac, Flesh versus spirit. It's important for you and I to remember that you and I cannot separate these four factors. Law, grace, flesh, and spirit in this account. The Judaizers were teaching that the law made these believers. This makes you more spiritual. This makes you more mature. This makes you more godly. But Paul is making it clear that the law only releases opposition in your life. Opposition of the flesh and a conflict within the believer ensues, right? We know it in Paul's own life, Romans seven nineteen. For what I want to do, I do not do. And what I don't want to do, I do. And he goes back and forth and he outlines that war even in his own life. There was no law on this planet that could either change or control Ishmael. In the same way, the flesh persecutes the believer just as Ishmael persecuted Isaac. Now, having explained the significance of the two sons and Hagar and Sarah, Paul turns to an explanation of the two wives, specifically Sarah and Hagar. And through this analogous explanation, Paul is illustrating the contrast that exists between law and grace. And he's proving yet again that the believer is not under law, but is under the loving freedom that comes through God's grace. And so let's focus on a couple of facts about Hagar that prove that the law no longer has power over the believer. Number one, and the question in front of us, I think this is your next slide. What do these historical facts and Paul's analogous use of them teach us about our relationship to the law? One thing you'll know about Hagar um, 
She was Abraham's wife, but she was Abraham's what number wife? First or second? Second, right? She was Abraham's second wife. And here's what Paul's doing. He's saying, listen, the law was added later, right? The law was added later and served a very temporary function. This is, a, this is already a message and principle and spiritual truth we've already seen in Galatians. God didn't begin with Hagar, did he? He began with Sarah. And as far as God's dealing with, with men are concerned, God began with grace. He's always begun with grace. In eating, God provided Abraham and Eve by grace. Even after they sinned, he provided for them coats of skins for covering, right? Genesis 3.21. He did not give them laws to obey as a way of redemption, did he? Instead, he gave them a gracious promise to believe. And what was that promise? Galatians 3, what? Anyone remember? He gave them a promise even as he's dispensing discipline. And they were to believe what promise? Genesis 3.15. A rescue would come from the seed of woman who would specifically crush the head of he who would bruise his heel. Right? The very one that would hang Christ on the cross, Satan would proceed to crush his head through his own life, death, and resurrection. This is what, in part what we celebrate at Christmas, right? It's the fulfillment of Genesis 3.15. It's that promise that they clung to and believed that from the seed of the woman, a rescuer would come. God first operated on the basis of grace, not law. His covenant with Abraham was a covenant of grace. Why? It's because, well, we've already looked at this. Abraham was literally in a deep sleep when God made the covenant with him. God made the covenant. Even when God delivers Israel years later after Abraham, it was on the basis of grace and not law. The law hadn't even been given yet. And like Hagar, Abraham's second wife, the, the law was added later. And Paul mentioned in, this earlier in Galatians 3.19 that Hagar performed a function temporarily, right? And then moved off the scene. You see what Paul's doing here. The law came later, served a purpose temporarily, and then moved off the scene, right? just as the law performed a special function and then was taken away. The law was added later and performed a temporary function. Secondly, second way Hagar illustrates the law no longer has power over the believer. The law was given as a servant, right? Hagar was a slave. Five times in this section, Hagar is called a bondwoman or a bondmaid. That's not the case with Sarah. How is Sarah described? What's the title for her? She's a free woman, right? So her position was therefore one of liberty and freedom. But Hagar, even though married to Abraham, was still a servant. Here's what Paul's doing. Likewise, the law was given as, as a servant. It served as a mirror to reveal our sin, and it does it wonderfully, right? Romans 3.20, through the law comes the knowledge of sin. And not only was it a mirror, but as we saw in Galatians 3, 22 through 25, the law was a monitor, a tutor to do what? To us. The law is a tutor unto who? Christ, right? It's a schoolmaster 
The law is teaching and shaping and directing our minds and our attention to the one that we desperately need. Why? Because you cannot possibly fully sufficiently keep this law that rests upon you. You need someone to do for you what you cannot do for yourself. You need someone to come and fulfill the law perfectly. Then die in your place, absorb your punishment, so that he might give you life and righteousness that comes from himself. Right? The law is a tutor under Christ. It is a servant, just as Hagar was. The law was never meant to be a mother, <laughs> is the takeaway. Okay, Which leads us to the third way Hagar illustrates that the law no longer has power over the believer. The law is unable to give life. This sounds familiar? It should. Again, it's a message we've already seen in this book. The law is unable to give life. Hagar was not meant to bear children, is the truth of it. Who was the promise initially given to? Sarah, right? Hagar was not meant to bear children. Abraham's marriage to Hagar was outside of the will of God. It was the result of Sarah and Abraham's unbelief and impatience. And so Hagar was trying to do what only Sarah could do, and it failed. I mean, the whole book at this point has been Paul pointing out what the law cannot do. And the argument is simple. It's plain, right? If you have a group of Jewish elites, these Judaizers, that are insisting that these Gentiles be circumcised before they can, before they can be made with, right with God, bringing them back to law instead of grace, Paul's argument is, it's just to beat the drum of the law cannot do what you think it can do. Who has bewitched you? Who's misleading you? The law can't give life. We saw that in chapter 3, verse 21. It can't give righteousness. Chapter 2, verse 21. It can't give the gift of the Spirit. Chapter 3, verse 2. It cannot even give you a spiritual inheritance. Chapter 4, verse 18. We've seen it throughout the book of Galatians. Isaac was born Abraham's heir, but Ishmael could not share in that inheritance. Remember who Ishmael represents? He represents law. <laughs> He's, that's the salt shaker, right? Law, grace. These are the object lessons here. And yet here is where the Judaizers were committing the egregious error. They were trying to make Hagar a mother again. And church, the reality is, is that no amount of religion, no amount of legalism can give the dead, dead Israel life. Only who can give you life through his gospel. Only God through Christ and his gospel can give you life. Only grace, right? Fourth way, Hagar illustrates that the law no longer has power over the believer. The law was added temporarily, used for a function, a temporary function. Fourth is that the law produced bondage. The law produces bondage. Hagar gave birth to a slave. All right. According to Genesis sixteen twelve, Ishmael would be a wild man. And even though he was a slave, nobody could control him, not even his own mother. Okay. And like Ishmael, the old nature, the flesh, is at war with God, and the law cannot change or control the old nature. Just as the law could not, just as individuals could not control Ishmael, the wild man, right? 
by nature the spirit and the flesh are against one another. We see it in Galatians 5, 17. And no amount of religious activity is going to change that picture. We'll talk about it in a moment, but why do people go back to, le- go back to legalism? You have an individual struggling with sin, right? They're reeling of the weight and guilt and shame that they continue to fail time and time again. That is their experience. Why are they drawn? Why is there a magnetic pull in their lives towards legalism to make them feel better? Why is that? Gives me a rule book, right? What else? They're in control. So they think. outwardly appear righteous while there's not any sort of interchange within, right? We're drawn back to legalism because it gives the allure, the facade, that somehow that will make me better. That will somehow chart a path for me to maintain control over this flesh in old nature. If I just build the walls high enough and I just stack up enough barbed wire at the top, I won't climb over it again. Is that the case? No, we grab our spoon and what do we do? We dig right underneath the wall (laughs) and we're out again. Ishmael was a wild man. The point that Paul is making is that the law cannot control the old nature, just as, as no one could control Ishmael. The takeaway for you and I is whoever chooses Hagar or law for his mother is going to experience bondage, okay? But the opposite is also equally and wonderfully true. Whoever chooses Sarah or grace as represented in this text, you choose grace as your mother is going to enjoy liberty, freedom, and empowerment to walk in righteousness and true righteousness. Does it mean that you will no longer fail? No, you know this from your own experience. But it's a far better path. It's the far superior path than trying to live under law all over again. It cannot give you life and it only produces bondage. It is a servant. God wants his children free. Galatians 5.1. Now that doesn't mean that gives us a license to sin, right? Do we go on a sinning so that grace may abound? May it never be. And we're going to talk about that in Galatians 5 and 6 extensively. Fifth way that Hagar illustrates that the law no longer has power over the believer is that the law was temporary, right? This goes back to our first point. Eventually, Hagar, what happens to Hagar and Ishmael? We've already touched on it. In Genesis, what happens to them? They're sent away, right? Again, keep in mind our metric, our, our graph, our chart of the juxtaposition between Various object lessons, right? Using that historical account as an analogy for spiritual truths, right? And I want to be careful here. This, the Spirit is leading Paul to do this. It, it's very squirrely and kind of quirky to read, right? What we don't want to do is walk away from Galatians 4, 21 through 31 and feel like I can just go to any historical Old Testament text and read hidden meanings inside of it. I'm not led by God's Spirit to do it and I'm not writing Scripture, Okay. God is leading Paul to take something that they were very familiar with. Salt and pepper shaker, stack of napkins and a plate, right? Let me take what you know and use it to explain what you're not getting in the present day, okay? Paul is allowed to do this at just juncture. We need to be careful. Let's stay 
to the text, okay? That is our role. Uh, rabbit trail caveat there, okay? The law was temporary. In Genesis 21.9, it was Sarah who gave the order to cast out Hagar and Ishmael, the bondwoman, and her son. God subsequently approves of that in Genesis 21.12. Now, Ishmael had been in the home for about 17 years before being sent away, but his stay, here's the principle, his stay was not permanent. Remember who Ishmael represents. He represents law. Right? Eventually, he had to be cast out. There was not room in the household for both Hagar and Ishmael with Sarah and Isaac. Someone had to go. It would be Hagar and Ishmael. North Lake, here's what Paul is saying through this illustration. It is impossible for law and grace, Hagar and Sarah, to compromise and try to stay together. Okay? Let me say that again. It's impossible for law and grace, Hagar and Sarah, to compromise and stay together. And yet, is that not what many, many churches who are steeped in legalism try to do? Let me try to marry and maintain a relationship between the two, right? Can I have both? Can I have grace and law? God did not ask Hagar and Ishmael to make occasional visits to home. When they were cast out, they were cast out. The break was permanent, right? And yet, and here's the error that the book of Galatians is dispelling and correcting. In Paul's day, the Judaizers, and in our day, even today, legalists in the present time, are trying to reconcile Sarah and Hagar, Isaac and Ishmael. But that type of reconciliation is contrary to the word of God. It is impossible to mix law and grace, faith and works. God's gift of righteousness and man's attempt to earn righteousness. We receive righteousness one way, and that is by grace. It's not by keeping law. The Judaizers needed to be corrected, called out. The Galatian Christians needed to be called back to this wonderful truth. Sixth and final way Hagar illustrates, for the sake of time, we have to move forward, that the law no longer has power over the believer. I struggled with maybe how to put this, but here's, here's the point as, I, as I'm reading it. Believers are not to merge their old address, which is Mount Sinai, with their new and better address, Mount Zion, right? Let me say that again. Believers are not to merge their old address, Mount Sinai, with their new and better address, Mount Zion. Put this another way. Legalism opposes the plan of God, okay? Legalism opposes the plan of God. Did, did Hagar ever marry again? That's the question, right? Rally is Hagar never marries again, right? We know this even with the law. Hagar represents the law, right? Did God give the law to any other nation or people? No, he didn't. And that includes the church, right? The Judaizers were trying to impose the law on the Galatian Christians. When they were doing that, that's opposing the plan of God. In Paul's day, the nation of Israel was under bondage to the law. While the church is enjoying liberty under the gracious rule of a Jerusalem, as Paul says, that was from above, right? Galatians 4.26. The Judaizers wanted to wed Mount Sinai, the 
place of bondage and where the law was given. You'll recall that historical account. That's the place where the law was granted. And they were trying to wed that place with the heavenly Mount Zion, right? A Jerusalem from above. But to do this was to deny what Jesus had done for them was the problem. They were denying what Jesus did on at Calvary. Hagar is not to be married again. Turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 12 for a moment. We're going to see this some months down the road. Mount Sinai where the law was given. This is important even with the Hebrews 12. Mount Sinai where the law was given has nothing to do with the Jerusalem above. Okay, That's a place that Hebrews 12 describes as the city of the living God. Okay, City of the living God. We're going to turn in a minute after this to Isaiah 60. Hebrews 12, 18. For you have not come to a mountain that can be touched into a blazing fire, into darkness and gloom and whirlwind. Move on to verse 22. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to myriads of angels. Right? You have come to Mount Zion. You belong to a Jerusalem from above, a city of of the living God. We know this in Philippians 3, right? We have a citizenship and it is not here, right? Philippians 3, we eagerly wait a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, as our full citizenship of belonging to heaven is finally made manifest and full. Philippians 3:20. It is a Jerusalem above that Paul references. I think the question for you and I is, why would anyone ever want to merge their old address, Mount Sinai, the place where the law was given, with their new and better address, Mount Zion? Why do people want to do this? Well, I think we've already touched on it a little bit, right? It's because it gives some semblance of control. It it spawns from a frustration, right? that I am wrestling and grappling with sin. And and perhaps if I can just pull myself up by my bootstraps, I can conquer this old nature, this flesh. Perhaps I can deal with this guilt of not sensing that I am right with my God and my maker. Perhaps if I'm just good enough, perhaps if I just do X, Y, and Z, and pull this lever and push that button, God would be pleased with me. In In our fallenness, that's our natural disposition to feel, right, in our own sense of autonomy and self-reliance that we can make ourselves better and right than we are. And that's where the Bible, you open it up and you look through its pages and you realize, I've got no hope of that happening, but by the grace of another, right? And that's where we revel in the gospel. That's where we sing of the Lord's praises and give him thanks for that he, some 2,000 years ago, did what? He came to this earth, took on the form of a servant, emptied himself to the point of death, being obedient to the Father in every way, both law and his will to die as a sacrifice for sinners. That's what Christmas is for us, the fulfillment of this promise. I think a couple of takeaways for us, because I want to leave some time for discussion. How do we live what we learn? How do we resist 
the pull that legalism hounds us with, right? How do we resist the pull that legalism hounds us with? Let's just kind of open the floor before I follow that up with a few questions. How do you resist a pull that exists on your life of legalism calling you back to be under law? How do you resist that practically, tangibly? What's that, Naomi? Having awareness of it, okay? (laughs) Uh, Admit that you have a problem, okay? Have awareness of it. Know that that is your bent. Know that that is your inclination, your proclivity, right? What else? Read the word, right? To give a phenomenal Sunday school, but wonderfully true answer. Read the word. Joe, why do we read the word? What's that? Meditate on it and apply it to my life. What is that word telling me? From pages to pages, start to finish. The truth, truth, which is, we need Jesus, (laughs) right? We need, five letter word begins with G and ends with E. Grace, okay. And then we worship a God who is a God of grace. Brings us sanctification. It helps us deal with that old nature and the flesh in a far superior way than legalism could ever bring, okay? What else? Preach the word, preach the gospel to myself. I think this resonates with me because I, I think I have, a, I have a lane, I have ruts, Deep whirlwind ruts, warts, uh, warts. They're warts too. Ruts of uh, self-loathing, right? Of self-deprecating, um, getting down on myself to the point that it becomes counterproductive and self-defeating, right? When I need to go back to the message of the gospel, it was for freedom that Christ set me free. Therefore. Don't be subject again to a yoke of slavery. Why does Paul have to say that? It's because we love to run back to the yoke, right? Any other ways that we resist the pull for legalism on our life? Always go back to grace. Always go back to him, absolutely. And that's the sweetness about these, this time, right? The whole of this morning is about the exaltation of Jesus Christ. And when we're faithful to do just that, what are we doing? I am casting my eyes to him who's extended and made grace possible, right? You, you, everyone comes. This is, a, this is the sweetness about the, really the miraculous inner workings of the church when we gather, right? Is that everyone has a story of what transpired this week, Okay. Uh, mine, mine entailed a, getting in a car wreck, being pulled over by a police officer, full of a lot of stuff, right? Um, and yet we even sin, failing to, to steward my day, my time, be faithful to the Lord. All of us have those examples and you can think of them right now, right? The sweetness of this morning is that we all get a laser focus on one objective and that's to do what Craig just mentioned, look to the Lord Jesus Christ, Right? And in looking to him, we're all collectively ministered to in very, very similar ways. We're humbled. We're filled with thankfulness. Our discontentment is addressed. Our self-pity is assuaged, right? Our guilt is removed. 
Our sin is washed away. Contrition is implanted in our heart. God right contrition. Repentance overflow comes out, is the overflow, the outflow of that. And God is honored, right? People, his people are blessed, okay? That's the sweetness of the morning. I wanna encourage you even as we spend the next hour, we're gonna sing very familiar Christmas songs. Pay attention to the words. We're gonna look at Matthew 2, this visit of an unlikely group and band of sinners in the Magi, right? God has a word for you and I, and he has praises of which he's deserving of, right? So let me pray for us in our time. Uh, Lord, this is, a, this, was an in, this is an interesting text of Paul using a historical event in really object lesson, kitchen table sort of ways. I, I pray that we were able to just mine and glean just a measure of what he's trying to do here, which is the same message uh, and, and aspiration that he's had over this entire book. And that's to dismantle and rid legalism within, from our lives. Uh, you were doing it in Paul's day and you continue to do it in your church today. You know the ways in which we are prone to gravitate back towards law. We pray that you would address us. Even as Naomi said, Lord, you give us an awareness that I am keenly attuned that this is true of my life and I need it addressed. I pray that you would do that in us, conform us into your likeness. May Christ be formed in us, just as Paul says in Galatians. We pray that not for our own our, our own self-exaltation, but Lord, because we want you honored. We want you put on display. We want these trophies of grace known as our lives to be testaments of your inner working in us in miraculous and powerful ways. And we pray this for your glory. We pray this, we pray for our pastor, uh, giving him uh, a degree and measure of your spirit, spirit unction to be faithful, giving clarity and conviction and power as he preaches. And Lord, help us to have open ears, to be attentive to place ourselves under your word. And Lord, have you wrought whatever you desire in our lives, whatever you have planned for us, whether it be sanctification, whether it be salvation to someone who is not yet in Christ, would you make it so for your glory? We pray it in Jesus' name, amen.